From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, The Right to Sex. That's the provocative title of the new feminist bestseller by Amia Srinivasan. Who has a right to sex and who doesn't? For some answers, we will turn to Katha Pollitt. But first, the progressive agenda in Congress. What's left of it? Ro Khanna of the Congressional Progressive Caucus will comment. That's coming up in a minute. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. When everyone is on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said. Done. The progressive agenda in Congress. What's left of it, including proposals to make tech work for everybody? For that, we turn to Ro Khanna. He represents Silicon Valley in Congress, where he's a prominent figure in the Progressive Caucus. He was a co-chair of Bernie Sanders' 2020 presidential campaign. He's taught economics at Stanford. He served in the Obama administration, and he's represented tech companies and startups in private practice. His new book is Dignity in a Digital Age, Making Tech Work for All of Us. Rokana, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Well, before we talk about your new book, I wanted to ask briefly about our political situation right now. Uh, we're all feeling discouraged and anxious about the midterms in, what, nine or ten months. Is the Democratic majority in the House doomed in the midterms? What would it take to turn things around? No, it's not doomed. It's at risk. But we will have a lot of pickup opportunities. The maps in New York and California uh, look good for us. Uh, we also have a lot of great candidates who've won now two election cycles, many in 2018 and 2020. Two things are the key. First, we do have to get a few more of the president's priorities passed, some compromised version uh, of Build Back Better. Uh, I hope we make some progress on voting rights, at least not overturning uh, the election. And second, we need to talk about all that we've done. I mean, first time ever we've met, had this massive investment in infrastructure. We're going to pass the Innovation and Competition Act, which I helped uh, author the Endless Frontiers part in the House, biggest science and technology investment uh, since the Kennedy days. 
it, it will facilitate things like Intel creating 3,000 manufacturing jobs in Ohio. And then, of course, the American Rescue Plan and the Child Tax Credit. So much to talk about that we have to do a better job getting out. Well, let's talk just for a minute about the failure of voting rights in the Senate, which seems especially ominous. Is there any way forward at this point to stop Republicans from making it harder to vote? Yes, there is. And that is to get 60 votes on a narrower version of voting rights. That would include the very basic thing that Klobuchar is working on, which is to make sure that states can override the popular vote in that state. All states have laws on the books saying that the state legislature should abide by the popular vote in the state. Uh, but Trump obviously tried to overturn that. At least that will be harder to do if this reform passes. And then take some of the most essential parts of the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. It's things like you should have the same amount of ballot boxes in heavily African-American areas. You shouldn't be able to kick people off the rolls you shouldn't be able to bully local election officials and try to get that in a bill that passes with 60 votes. That's our best chance. So you talked about uh, Build Back Better. The bill that passed in the House, of course, was changed significantly in the Senate to meet the demands of Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. Now it's coming back to the House. What for you has to be in that bill? And do you see problem areas for you and the other progressives? Well, I don't want to put red lines because what we need to do is pass it. I mean, given that there is some risk in 2022, it would be catastrophic if we don't do anything on climate. So to me, the bill should be centered on climate, the four to five hundred billion dollars of investment that would make a massive difference. And then it should have some of the basic other social investments that Senator Manchin has been for a free a preschool for every three and four year old in America, some basic childcare, expansion of Medicare. I believe we can get a new version of the bill around those principles uh, that would get the support into the president's desk. We have to say yes to it. Is it the bill I would have written? No. Is it the bill the Progressive Caucus would have written? No. Uh, is it infinitely better uh, than nothing? Absolutely. You mentioned the bill you introduced in the House, the Endless Frontiers Act, to create high-tech hubs around the country, research centers that would lead to manufacturing of semiconductors and other critical high-tech supplies here at home in America and not just in California. That's one of the themes of your new book, Dignity in a Digital Age. Progressives love this bill. But in the Senate, it got turned into something sort of different. Now, as you say, it's called the Innovation and Competition Act. It's a tech bill with a lot of military spending and a lot of bipartisan support. Progressive organizations and peace groups are uneasy with it because it seems too aggressive towards uh, a new Cold War, especially with China. It's a very significant bill, as you've said. It's coming back to the House now. Where do you stand on what the Senate did with your Endless Frontiers bill? Overall, I support the Innovation and Competition Act. It would be the largest investment since the Kennedy days in science and technology. And at its core, it's Intel creating 3,000 manufacturing jobs in Ohio, uh, and 7,000 construction jobs. These aren't software engineers at Google. This is uh, advanced manufacturing. This is in the heartland. And we need to do that in the South. We need to do that in African-American, Latino uh, communities. But you are right that there are some provisions that were added 
that are unnecessary. A language, in my view, that is overly restrictive of even cultural exchange or cooperation with countries like China on climate or scientific research that would advance human knowledge. Uh, we don't want to replicate a Cold War with China while we want to continue to expand our lead and make sure America leads technologically. And so the House version uh, hopefully uh, addresses some of the worst elements uh, of that language and uh, will pass and then in conference can be reconciled. Overall, though, I may yes vote on the bill. Your district is home to Apple, the world's most valuable public company. Last week, they announced a 20% jump in profits in their most recent quarter. They made $35 billion in profits in three months. I think that's more than the entire state economy of West Virginia. <laughs> Apple recently reached $3 trillion in market value. It's fallen back a little bit recently. It seems like Apple shows pretty clearly that too much wealth is concentrated in too few hands, especially in your district. Yes, and that's uh, in some sense the thesis of the book. I mean, the market cap of companies in my district and the surrounding area is $11 trillion, 40% increase over the last two years. This is the most wealth generation probably anywhere in human history. And yet so many people are excluded from the opportunities of the modern economy. They've experienced deindustrialization. They've experienced jobs going offshore. They have their kids buying one-way tickets out of their hometowns. And a large part of the argument of the book is that we have to decentralize the opportunities of the modern economy so that you can stay in your hometown and have a chance at a one of these 25 million digital jobs or at a potential uh, prosperous uh, occupation in, in a digital economy the political possibilities here, is it possible that addressing unequal access to technology, spreading the jobs and the skills and the wealth the way you propose, is it possible that all that might change things for Trump's base so that they would be less responsive to his angry and bitter message? Of course, he did succeed in getting elected by manipulating the, you know, the legitimate anxieties about job losses and deindustrialization in the Rust Belt, do you have hopes that you might be able to change the feelings and the votes of some of the Trump base? The hope is to be able to reduce some of the bitterness and some of the divisiveness in this country, recognizing, though, that economic empowerment is only part of the issue and that there are deeper issues with becoming a multiracial, multicultural democracy. But the reality is that for many people in this country, the modern economy has not worked. Too many jobs have gone offshore. There has been deindustrialization. While my district is thriving, uh, that has meant in some places empty storefronts. And we have to have an aspirational vision for places left out. It can't just be that uh, we, Zuckerberg and others make all the money and that they send everyone else a check. I'm for taxing the billionaires more, but places like Cleveland, they used to be the Silicon Valley of their time. They have pride. They want to participate in modern wealth generation. And part of my message is if we can bring a new modern prosperity to these communities, their ability to participate without cultural displacement, the promise of new jobs without uh, them having to fundamentally change their way of life, uh, then maybe that helps ease some of the divisiveness, ease some of the bitterness, 
and also has people working in rural communities with African-American communities and the coast. The Intel example in Ohio being a prime example of what we may be able to do across the country. You mentioned Mark Zuckerberg. Let's talk about uh, Facebook, one of the subjects of your book, Dignity in the Digital Age. You know, Facebook, a lot of us think, has done a lot of damage in the last few years. What do you see as the biggest problems with Facebook and, and what can we do about them? One of the biggest problems is the incitement of violence. I mean, how can it be that a few days before January 6th, private security at Facebook goes to Zuckerberg and says, you have people talking about specific acts of violence with specific times, specific places. They're going to assassinate potentially lawmakers. And Zuckerberg decides to sit on the information. Uh, even under the Supreme Court Brandenburg test, you shouldn't be allowed to allow the incitement of violence on your platforms. There needs to be a law uh, requiring disclosure of that and removal of that. And then there has to be a broader laws uh, that uh, deal with this algorithmic amplification where they take people's data and, and then prey on the most vulnerable. Uh, they were responsible in part for the rise of QAnon, pushing that type of nonsense uh, into people's social media feeds. So uh, it calls for both uh, legal reform, but also then the hope for some ethics to emerge in social media sites. One last thing, your family is from India, you are Hindus. You write in Dignity in a Digital Age that you were once told that a Hindu could never be elected to Congress in America, but that you could have a brilliant career as a congressional staffer. What's it been like for you as a Hindu in American politics? Well, it has been a very interesting uh, a challenge. On the one hand, uh, it hasn't been nearly the, the barrier that I would have imagined growing up, uh, that uh, there is now an openness to a more multiracial, multi-ethnic democracy, and people respect other people of faith and, and talking about that faith. Uh, on the other hand, candidly, the biggest challenge has been some of the politics of the subcontinent, because I describe myself as a, a Gandhian Hindu, and that means a, a Hindu who believes deeply in pluralism, who disdains caste and caste politics, who believes that whether you're a Sikh or Muslim or Christian, you should have equal status, not just in the United States, but even in India. And there have been extreme elements uh, in the uh, Indian American community who haven't liked my pluralistic conception of Hinduism derived uh, and influenced by Gandhi. And actually that, that has been one of my biggest challenges uh, in politics. And there's also been a certain amount of hostility towards India for taking tech jobs from Americans. Has any of this washed over onto you? Well, who knows what motivates a person's politics deep down, but I wonder if part of what motivates my deep desire to bring technology jobs, to bring opportunities to places like where I grew up, Bucks County, Pennsylvania, to go around the country and say that rural America and black and brown communities can participate in this, is an awareness of uh, a sense of drift in these jobs having been offshored uh, to India and Eastern Europe and other places. And uh, part of my vision is, well, if these jobs can be done in rural communities in India, why aren't those jobs in the heart of our country? What is preventing us from doing that? And couldn't we develop that opportunity here uh, so that there is less of a sense uh, that globalization means job loss 
and, and reduction of opportunity. So I'm sure being Indian American uh, in some sense has inspired my work. The book is Dignity in a Digital Age, Making Tech Work for All of Us. Rokana, thanks for this book and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you for the opportunity. Appreciate it. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. The Right to Sex. That's the provocative title of the new feminist bestseller by Amiya Srinivasan. Who has a right to sex and who doesn't? For some answers, we turn to Katha Pollitt. Of course, she's a poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for the nation. She's also written for The New Yorker, Dissent, The New York Times, and other publications. Katha, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. Well, let's start with the title of this book, The Right to Sex and the Case of Elliot Roger who killed six people in Santa Barbara in 2014 and left behind a 100,000-word manuscript explaining that he thought he had a right to sex. He did. Um, my own view is that no one has a right to sex. I think if people want to sleep with you, you're really lucky if you want to sleep with them. Otherwise, maybe not so lucky. <laughs> um, but the idea that just by being a human being on this planet, people have to sleep with you, that seems insane to me. Elliot Roger is has become a kind of a symbolic figure of a new phenomenon in world culture. Remind us what where well, he stands. These are the incels, which is short for involuntarily celibate. And these are young men who simultaneously consider themselves very physically unattractive, but also that really high class women who they call um, Stacy's should sleep with them. But instead, the Stacys want to sleep with the Chads, who are the alpha males. And this is very unfair. <laughs> Something must be done about this. I mean, it's really nuts. It's, it's just completely insane. I want to call those people up and say, you know, if you worked a little bit on your character, forget your looks. Anybody can, you know, most people get married. Most people do have some kind of an effective life, um, no matter what they look like. And if you would just work a little bit on your personality and on being a nice and interesting person, eventually people would, someone would like you enough to want to uh, be your girlfriend. Very nice thought. Um, I, can I say one more thing about this? Please. Which is, the thing about the incels is that they don't really just want sex, although it's often portrayed that way. They want girlfriends. 
you because sex any man can have. I mean, this is why sex work is work, you know, but that's not what they want. They want the attention of women, the favorable attention and emotional labor of women. And that is something that is harder to get than sex. And the person who has written a book about this, Amya Srinivasan, is quite a cultural phenomenon right now. She had a big piece in the New York Times Magazine, another in the New Yorker. She was featured in British Vogue. Tell us about this author. Well, Amya Srinivasan is, she's in her middle 30s. She describes herself as queer. She is most important, more important than those things, is the Titchley Professor of Social and Political Theory at Oxford, which is a post that was held for, uh, by Isaiah Berlin for many years, and also by Charles Taylor, who's a big philosophical deal. So that it's going, she's the first woman, and she's the youngest person by a considerable amount. So that all creates a lot of interest in her. Um, and also she's writing about things that we don't usually think of as them of, of philosophy, sex, feminism, all that. Um, I mean, feminism a little bit, but not incels, not pornography. So I think uh, we can agree that it's wrong when men <clears throat> focus their desire on women who are blonde or Asian, which is the current issue uh, here. But doesn't criticizing people for who they are attracted to seem like a losing proposition? Well, it certainly in the short run, it does. Back in the 70s, there was something called political lesbianism, which was when some lesbian feminists uh, tried to persuade straight women to give up men. Um, and I don't think that was a lasting success. Um, <laughs> I'm sure there were some straight women who discovered their inner lesbian because of that. But I think in general, people, they have the tastes they have. They like the people they like. And there's not much that one can do about that. We can recognize that both men and women have desires shaped by culture and history. And we can try to be more open about who we desire and, and what makes them desirable. But but who is going to hear this message? Well, this is the thing. I just in this call out to people to be more broad minded, you know, maybe you'd like to sleep with a trans woman or a trans man. Give it a try, because this, the in, initial focus of this issue is the efforts of trans women to get lesbians to sleep with them, which have been called bullying. And I don't actually know what the ratio of bullying to newly discovered desire is. Um, but yeah, but who gets to hear that? Who is going to hear this message? It's not going to be men. Men are not going to say, wow, I should really try sleeping with a 400 pound woman. I might like it. No, they're not. They're going to say, honey, you, you've been gaining. I mean, is that five pounds? I see around your middle there. Maybe you should go to the gym more often. Uh, uh, no, but women are very vulnerable to all kinds of moralistic and emotional bullying. They've been raised to be that way. And that interesting enough is what that wonderful story, Cat Person was all about. Remember that viral short story by Kristen Rupinian? And it's about a woman who can't figure out this guy who's interested in her. Is he, you know, is he nice, but kind of clueless? Is, is he maybe a serial killer? 
And she can never really make up her mind about him because the risks of the wrong decision are very great, but also the risks of the right of not of not giving this guy the emotional attention that all men seem to think they deserve. So you wrote about this for Descent magazine and there um, you return to the topic of the involuntarily celibate and you bring up what you call, quote, the largest group of losers in the dating and mating game. Who is that? Well, that's older women. And it's so interesting that she's so concerned. She, Amiya Srinivasan, is so concerned about these horrible incels. And she's not at all concerned about this huge demographic that is right in front of us that everybody knows examples of, which is older women, which is I take to be a woman over, you know, 40, 45, that men her own age simply will not date, who goes on dating apps and gets only insults or nothing. Um, you try being a 60-year-old woman, 60-year-old men are not going to be interested in you. They say they want a 25-year-old, but they probably accept a 40-year-old, but they're not going to accept a 70-year-old. Uh, so it's amazing to me that this very important demographic peculiarity is completely invisible to her. Well, one of Amiya Srinivasan's essays is called Talking to My Students About Porn. And of course, all readers turn to this one right away. What, what do her students say about porn? Well, it's really interesting because what her students say is not at all what you would gather if you spend a lot of time on, say, feminist Twitter, where porn is great, sex work is, you know, it's either just work or a wonderful thing. What her students say to her is that porn is very damaging to them. Both the men and the women say this, that it has promoted misogyny and sexism. It's affected their sex lives in bad ways, that it's sort of destroyed tenderness and kindness and fun in bed in favor of, you know, all kinds of awful things. That was very interesting because this is exactly what Andrea Dworkin would have predicted, you know, and Andrea Dworkin gets some kind words from Amiya Srinivasan. So Amiya Srinivasan is a professor and has an essay titled On Not Sleeping with Your Students. This was the one that was in the New York Times Magazine. Actually, I thought it was pretty terrific. She's dealing with the argument made by male professors who insist their female students come on to them constantly. And they ask, well, what about all the male professors who ended up marrying one of their students and lived happily ever after? What does she say about all that? She says, basically, well, probably a lot of these men are not being strictly truthful, but more important, your job as a teacher is to teach your students. And the idea that sleeping with your students is part of the pedagogical project <laughs> is, is kind of insane. Let's remember, Socrates did not sleep with his students, although he was very attracted to them and made an argument against doing that. I thought that essay was, was very, very good. Now, as it happens, just yesterday, I heard from a dear, dear old friend who uh, is quite uh, culturally conservative, I would say, um, and who you would think would, well, perhaps it's not surprising that he protested. He said, you know, I have been married to my wife for 50 years and she was my student. And there, you know, there I had I had a relationship with a professor of mine, but I was older than him, it was, okay. you know, <laughs> It was after the, and it was not a class that was very important to me. And it, you know, I mean, life is complicated. People do all kinds of things, but there are these guys who 
far from just falling in love with one person, it's a, it's a routine. Every semester or every year, there's a new one. And that's very damaging because these women are often very young and they're kind of naive and they don't understand what's going on. So let me quote Amiya Srinivasan. The teacher-student relationship arouses in the students a strong desire, a sense of thrilled, if inchoate, infatuation. That desire is the lifeblood of the classroom, and it is the teacher's duty to nurture and direct it towards its proper object, learning. The teacher who allows his student's desire to settle on him as an object, or the teacher who actively makes himself the object of her desire, has failed in his role as a teacher. Yeah, well, it's like the way she's talking about it is a lot like the way people talk about psychiatry and sleeping with your patient, that they may have feelings for you, but you have to not gratify those feelings and direct them in a better way. And I agree with that. And she declares that she's analyzing sex as a political phenomenon and that her work is, as she puts it, quote, animated by the hope of a different world, close quote. On the issue of the right to sex, she says no one is obligated to desire anyone else and that no one has a right to be desired, but she insists that who is desired and who isn't is a political question. So what are her politics? Well, she's a socialist, so she says, but I finished the book not really knowing what she meant by that and what effect socialism was supposed to have on the questions that she takes up. I'll give you a funny example, which is she talks about pornography and is mostly pretty negative about it. And in my S, my review, which I wrote for Dissent, a socialist magazine, one of the editors actually says, well, under socialism, couldn't the government pay for feminist porn? And I'm thinking, <laughs> oh yeah, we're really gonna see that oh, in, our, <laughs> in, in the next 500, sometime in the next 500 years. So I think that, um, We've gone as a society very far down certain roads, roads of uh, extreme, what's the word I'm searching for, licentiousness or sexual freedom. But that doesn't really go along with socialism as we have known it historically. Those countries, those socialist societies tend to have an initial burst of liberation followed by a real clampdown and there's certainly carceral, you know, she's another, she's a person who thinks, you know, she's very anti-carceral feminism, which is putting sex offenders in prison. But, you know, there is no socialist country that is not extremely carceral, including the death penalty in a lot of them. So I'm not really sure what she's kept driving at here. Part of her socialism is a criticism of what she calls mainstream feminism for prioritizing the concerns and interests of white middle-class women. For example, she says on the Me Too movement, uh, for many women, being sexually harassed is not the worst thing about their jobs. Yeah, I've heard that from a lot of people, and that may be true, but you know, only one thing can be the worst thing, and that doesn't mean we can't talk about the other things. So I would be wary of saying, oh yeah, you know, sexual harassment. Well, I don't like that, but what I really want is a raise. Yes, you should have a raise, but that doesn't mean your boss gets to put his hands all over you. The book is The Right to Sex. Katha Pollitt reviewed it for Descent Magazine. Thank you, Katha. Always great to talk with you. Lovely to talk to you, John. Thank you.
Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.